The Wise Life. Better decisions, fewer regrets. Good morning. At the time, I was driving a 1959 Dodge Pioneer with push-button transmission on the dash. And the minute I saw this 19, I believe it was a 1966 Mercury Cyclone GT convertible. The minute I saw it, I had to have it. It had the big block 390 engine in it. It's the second fastest car in the school. Now, I can't afford it. I don't know anything about cars. I don't have a father at home to help me wrench on it, but I got to have it. And so I finagled a deal. I borrowed money. I had $500 down, and I would pay $100 a month for the next five months. It was $1,000. I sold my Dodge Pioneer for 50 bucks. And a month later, I could have bought it back for 25 Yes, I'm old. A young person back there going, what? Gas was a quarter, a gallon. So I didn't care about how much gas this car drank. But it was like all hot rods. It was a finicky car. And I didn't know anything about it. So I got stranded several times a week for the first month. I got five tickets, no kidding, five tickets in one week in this car. It was too fast. It was too loud. It was too expensive. It was too finicky. And it was too much for me. After the second month, I lost it. It was repossessed and taken back to the guy. I could not make the payments and pay my tickets. <laughs> but I just had to have it. It probably goes down as the stupidest decision, purchase I've ever made. But there's lots of those still going on, just in case you think, oh, yeah, that's when you were 16. I carry a pocket knife. I don't know why. I never need it except to open a mail, open an envelope that I don't get anymore. Nobody uses snail mail. I use it, I guess, to clean underneath my fingernails. This past week, I checked. I went through my drawer where I keep my pocket knives. I have eight pocket knives in that drawer. I just bought this one like two weeks ago. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's an assist open. It's just so cool. And I carry this thing around and when I'm really bored, I just take it out and open it. Like I don't already have pocket knives. I love them. I will buy many more. As soon as I figure out how to not let Dana know I'm certain a new putter will help me putt better. I tell myself I'll work out tomorrow. I tell myself, well, I didn't have dessert all week, or I hardly had any lunch, or the sermon's ready. I tell myself these things all of the time. How about you? As you're hearing me talk about this, what's the worst purchase you've ever made? What are the kinds of things that you tell yourself? And here's the deal. You cannot lead yourself if you're lying to yourself. And we're all lying. Let me give you an example. 
I just saw the results this past week of the church survey that we recently took. I went through just this campuses, so other folks, you're off the hook. I'm just, just I'm going to talk to y'all, the campus here. Now, it's true that the only people that filled out this survey were the most committed, most godly people there are. But it's a chance that maybe it's a general, what I think is a good picture of who we are as a church. Now, again, they're anonymous, so don't feel like I know who you, what you put down. But according to that survey, just over 69% of this congregation here says they come to church every single week. <laughs> Y'all are lying. <laughs> I don't even come every week, and I'm paid to be here. 89% of this community said they come at least two to three times a week. 90% of us? Come on. 62% surveyed said that Jesus is the very most important aspect of their life. But only 25% of you serve here in any capacity ever. 70% said they give regularly here. Now, that's a, I know that that was a poorly worded picture, uh, question. I give regularly. Well, you get to define what regular is. But 70% said they give regular, but our records show that only about 30% of you do. In most of the cases, there was probably either an internal or an external sense or voice, maybe even a friend or a spouse who said, encouraging us to reconsider. You don't need another pocket knife. And in the end, that sense we had or that voice we hear ended up being right, but we just didn't listen. And the truth is, and unless we're honest with ourselves in here, all of the pursuit of wisdom, this is the foundational week. If you won't tell yourself the truth, you will not, you cannot be wise. We make dumb purchases that come with 70, 72 months of a payment plan or that most dangerous button in my house, it says, buy now. We're in doomed relationships. We know they're not healthy. We know they're not good for us, and yet we remain. And we have destructive habits. We have some of these things because of something that works into our soul called a confirmation bias. It's the tendency to interpret reality in ways that are partial or pre-existent to what we think. Confirmation bias doesn't just affect us with bad purchases. It may play in a number of different things, but it leads to some heartache, can lead to some heartbreak. We've all experienced confirmation bias. We're working our way through this little book that Jay chose for us called Better Decisions and Fewer Regrets. And it gives us a series of five questions, it says, to help you determine your next move. And this is the first of the five questions. 
And it's this one. Am I being honest with myself? Really? So let me pray for us. By the way, let me tell you straight up front, super difficult sermon for me to prepare. I'm incredibly sophisticated in my self-talk. It's so hard for me to even recognize sometimes the truth in a lie because I'm great at it. When I want what I want, I had all good reasons to buy that 65 Mercury Cyclone GT convertible. All good reasons. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather. Thank you for those who have joined us online in the theater. We ask that your spirit would have freedom, that we would have the courage to face the talk in our hearts that just isn't true. This is difficult for us, God. This is difficult. We want what we want, and we want it now. But we also want to be wise. So guide our time, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Wisdom is not a set of static set of solutions or, uh, or methods um, it's a dynamic gift that God gives you to interpret what's going on in the now and bring past experiences and past knowledges into that equation and make decisions that are good for us. Dallas Willard said that wisdom is the settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. The wisdom to build the kind of worthwhile life that we want, where we're really honest about ourselves and the nature of how we're living. Now, I'm going to share with you a Bible verse that is going to be utterly offensive to some of you. And especially in our culture, you're going to think it's just not true. So you do your wrestling with it while I read you God's word. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Now, I know this might offend some of you, but the Richard uh, Feynman said, the first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you're the easiest person to fool. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Now, how do you face this? If if that's true, then how do you face it? Well, in the book, Andy Stanley says that you move into this in a way by bringing curiosity and beginning to own some of your decisions. It's an awareness, a responsibility to the kinds of things that are actually going on inside your head without being defensive with yourself. The New Testament encourages us to do this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This word for examine is pirazzo, and it means to um, give an exam to, to literally have a test. Culture would tell us, 
You need to follow your heart and trust your feelings. But the scriptures tell us that we should test our feelings, test our heart. So what does testing and examining our hearts look like practically? Am I I telling myself, really a quick way to do this is, am I telling myself the truth or am I selling myself a regret? You know the self-talk that you give yourself. It's quite easy to recognize if you're paying attention to it. Are you talking yourself into things? Are you battling against other voices? I loved this quote out of Andy Stanley's book. He says, a permanent condition requires constant supervision. And the state of our heart is a permanent condition. So how do you get to it? He sa- Andy says, we punch through self-deception with curiosity. Curiosity keeps us focused on the frontiers of our ignorance. So you do this by just a series of questions. Now, let me, let me do this. Let me just ask you. The, the question in the chapter is, am I being honest with myself really? But let me just give some specific questions. And then as you listen, if you have the courage to, you listen and say, which of these questions are really making a difference? Which of these questions am I really wrestling with? Where am I lying to myself? Why am I so defensive? Really? Why am I obsessed with being in control? Really? Why am I slaving away to win, succeed, achieve, accumulate? Really? Why am I avoiding the difficult question? Really? Why am I so angry and outraged all the time? Really? Why am I continuing to scroll and swipe and post? Really? Why am I numbing out with another drink I shouldn't have? Really? Why am I flirting with that person who isn't my spouse? Really? Why am I spending money I don't have? Really? Why am I believing these lies about myself? Really? Many of you have heard this question, but it seems like a silly question. But I remember asking it when I was about 35 years old, and this was the question for me. Why do I love football? Really? And some of you know that the story, my first reaction was, well, I, I love football because it's such a great sport. I mean, it's just who can, who can not love football? Don't tell me if you don't. But as I did some of the work with the question and I sat with it a while, I realized that it actually exposed my father wound. When I was 13 and I just started playing football for the first time on an organized team, my father, who I hadn't seen in two years and I wouldn't see for another 10 years, showed up when I was 13 and I told him in, in my excitement, I've started playing football. His first words to me were, you should quit now. 
you're too small. You'll never make it. Why do I love football, really? Because I wanted to show that sorry son of a gun that he was wrong about me. So for the next 10 years, all the way through college, till I was 23, I sent him, my mother and I sent him, every time my name was in the paper, every time my picture was in the paper, anything that ever happened, he got a copy of that article mentioning me, and we underlined my name as if to say, wrong again, sucker. But I had no idea till I sat with the question. I had no idea. I lied to myself continually about the greatness of the sport and the time that I had spent giving to it. When in reality, I was still trying to show my father he was wrong about me. Do you know how freeing it is to finally say to the father who deserted you, I forgive you? I want that for you. But you will not find it if you continue to lie to yourself. It's not easy. It's not pleasant to delve into some of those things that we're telling ourselves. Now remember, Jeremiah 17 doesn't say that the broken heart is deceitful or the unredeemed heart is deceitful or the bad heart is deceitful or the struggling heart is deceitful. The heart, every heart, in all human hearts, they're all deceitful. And the tendency to self-deceive isn't for some of us. It's for all of us. But, but there's great hope. And a lot of the biographical sketches that we get in the scriptures, we see guys and gals that lie to themselves over and over again. And we see a loving, patient father move in and renew and redeem those situations. One of the most famous is the great self-deception of David the king. Now, David is widely considered to be the greatest and most godly king in Israel's history. And by the time you get to, to uh, 2 Samuel around 11, chapter 11 or so, David's about 50 or 55 years old. He's been reigning now, had amazing success, done incredible things. And we're introduced to this man who in, in the scriptures is said to be a man after God's own heart. We find this guy doing something unbelievable. And we, we think, how did this kind of a thing happen? Well, he's been lying to himself for a long time. By the time we pick it up in 2 Samuel chapter 11, he's got too many wives. He's a hypocrite in worship. He's got large crowds all around him, large family with no love. They never, he, there's never a time when it says he loves his family or that his family loves him in all of the biographical material we have about David. 
And then there's large crowds all around him all the time, but not one single person is said to be his friend. This is the guy who has the probably the most famous friendship in the Bible, David and Jonathan. And after Jonathan is dead, it never again says David has a friend. So you've got all of this stuff going on. He's just lying to himself over and over and over, not to mention the fact that he's idle at a time when he has responsibilities. 2 Samuel 11 opens up with, in the spring when kings go off to war. David's up on the roof. And one lie leads to another and one bad decision leads to another. And he rapes Bathsheba. He imposes his will, his power on her. And he, the scriptures say, takes her. When you get to 2 Samuel chapter 12, this dude named Nathan shows up and he starts telling this story about a guy who's really rich and a guy who only has one sheep. And by the time you get to the end of the story, David is outraged. He is indignant that someone with so much could take something away from someone who had so little. And Nathan says to him, you are that man. You are that man. And David's lies, his deceptive heart is suddenly exposed for all to see. All the covering up, all of the kinds of things that he tried to do to make this thing work out, he realizes it didn't work. This prophetic confrontation of Nathan removes the blinders of David's eyes and all the lies he tells, he's told himself come crashing down. And then 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David says the key to moving forward, and it's this, it's not a lie. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. All the cover-ups, all the lies, everything that he's been telling him for years, he's been telling himself this stuff for years. Bathsheba didn't just happen on a warm summer evening. It's been building for years. And finally, in his entitlement and in his privilege and in his lying self, he fell prey to it. But we get this beautiful gift. Psalm 51 is David's reaction. So I hope you're sitting here saying, you're right. I lie to myself. My heart is something that needs to be tested and not trusted. How do I move forward? Psalm 51, we get to see how David moves forward, and it gives us a pattern. I'm going to read you a big chunk of the psalm, and then I want to show the three steps that kind of went into the first 10 or 11, 12 verses. Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. 
against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me, yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb, and you taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I'll be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed, crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. The first thing that strikes you is, is he does not try to justify or defend what he has done. He repents. And this is the first part. It's the first recognition where he says, in verse 3, it's kind of capsulized with, I know my transgressions and my sins are always before me. The most important discipline in your Christian life is repentance. Isn't that weird? That's what I believe. It's not coming to church, although that's important. It's not, it's not reading your Bible, although that is important too. It is having a soft heart that is quick to repent when your heart shows you the wrong you have done. Dallas Willard in his book, Renovation of the Heart, said this, one of the greatest obstacles to effective spiritual formation in Christ today is simply failure to understand and acknowledge the reality of the human situation as it affects both Christians and non-Christians. We must start from where we really are. The initial move towards Christ-likeness cannot be towards self-esteem because of confusion of what self-esteem means, and because realistically, I'm not okay, and you're not okay. There's something broken in us. That's why Christ came. If you could fix it, he wouldn't have had to come. God knew it, and he stepped in the gap, and you just need to acknowledge it. And what holds us back from here are the denial and the lies that we tell ourselves. So first there's repentance, but then there's renewal. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create this in me. I'm, I've recognized my wrong. Now renew what's going on. Take over. Let the ministry of the Holy Spirit begin to happen. In fact, it's said this way in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, and it's come on you. The old is gone, and the new has come. This is, it doesn't surprise God that you sin, and you're not in trouble necessarily because you sinned. That's why Jesus came. You only get in trouble when you refuse to admit that you sinned. Because then the process of renewal can happen.
Then he goes on to say, David does in verse 12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Notice that he doesn't ask to restore salvation. See, sin, sin is not, is, you don't lose salvation when you sin. When you have embraced Christ, then it's, you've got to just embrace the forgiveness that's yours. He's saying, give me back the joy of that salvation. Grant me a willing spirit. This, this word for willing is nadiv. It's a very cool word. It mean, it's actually used for a prince or a princess, someone who is noble, who's generous, who has dignity. It's actually used in some places to say it's magnificent. That God wants to step in in such a way where, not that you just kind of get through it, but he wants to restore you and renew you in such a way where you're, it's magnificent. The old is gone, it's gone. And he restores us. Romans 8 is the New Testament way of understanding restoration because of what Christ has done. Let me read it to you. Listen closely. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, I'm sorry, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it, weakened by, it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us through Christ who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. What I want you to see here is by David's example, the the recognition that we lie to ourselves does not forfeit us from a, an abundant, meaningful, joyful life. But there's a process of repentance and renewal and restoration that God wants to do for us. So I want to challenge you to make a decision. And here it is. Make a commitment to yourself that you will not lie to yourself even when it hurts. Now, it's a little misleading the way that's said because you're going to lie to yourself. But as soon as you recognize the lie, you won't keep lying. So maybe a better way to say it would be, I won't keep lying. As soon as I recognize something to be untrue, I got to have another pocket knife. I just got to have one. I mean, it's black, and most of the other ones I have are black. So, I just won't keep lying. Nothing wrong with pocket knives. Nothing wrong with cars, new cars, or anything like that. As long as you make that decision based on the truth. I've got the money. I want another knife. Okay. I will not lie to myself or keep lying to myself. And run this through dumb purchases, doomed relationships, destructive habits. You, are there areas in your life where you're just, you're flat out lying to yourself? 
and you just have decided that you will face the truth. Jay, Jay quoted me last week, which was really weird. Um, but I'm going to quote him this week. He said this when he and I were talking about, he's preaching this message over at, um, at South Hills. He, when he and I were talking about this, he said, David's guilty remorse will become our preemptive response. I'm going to say it again. David's guilty remorse will become our preemptive response. Now, you know I'd never say something like that, right? I'm not even totally sure what a couple of the words mean. But it sounded so dang good that I just wanted to, but we see David's example and how when he recognizes that he's guilty, he simply repents and is renewed and restored We'll just make that how we'll respond. We'll decide now. When I see a lie, I'll call it a lie. I won't just go with it. I'll call it a lie. Now, that's not to say that all the things that you want are bad. I just don't want you to say yes to them because of a lie. That cupcake looks good. I'd like to have it. I want it. Then eat it. If you want it, eat it. But don't eat it because you hadn't had dessert in a week when you know you have. Or you're going to work out right after you eat it when you know you won't. Don't just don't stop lying to yourself. Eat the cupcake in freedom. I mean, just eat the sucker. We, I, we none of us care. You're not impressing us by eating it and saying, you know, I worked out extra this week. We don't care. Let David's guilty response become our preemptive. David's guilty remorse. See, I can't even read it, much less say it. <laughs> David's guilty remorse will become our preemptive response as we choose to stop hiding behind the lies and embrace the freedom we have in Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, first of all, for the gigantic testimony of your scriptures that declare your love and your patience, your kindness towards us. Would you give us the courage uh, to face lies that we might be telling ourselves? Would you give us the grace to just confess them and move forward? And would you give us the, the faithfulness to let this be part of our hearts that seek after you? We know we're going to lie some to ourselves, but when we see it, God, may we see it, repent from it, be renewed by your Spirit. Thank you for that truth of forgiveness. Thank you that Christ makes these things possible. And we pray in his precious name. Amen. 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 Would you stand with me as we invite the Spirit to know us, to search us, 
that we would become renewed 